Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're opening up to the book of Zephaniah, and we'll pick up at chapter 2. I will read the first three verses of Zephaniah chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Gather yourselves together, yes, gather, O nation, without shame. Before the decree takes effect, the day passes like the chaff. Before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Zephaniah, the prophet has been used of the Lord to speak about the coming day of wrath, the coming day of the Lord. In that day, in that coming day of the Lord, Judah would be raised, the enemies of Judah would be raised up by God to bring destruction to Judah for her sins and for her idolatry. He's told Judah. Uh, about God's wrath, how terrible it would be, and how, how near it was. And so if we go back and review a bit in the first chapter, you remember uh, verse 7 says, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated His guests. He's prepared that sacrifice. And the day of the Lord is near. And then we jump down to verse 12. It says, It will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit. Those who are stagnant in spirit are singled out to be punished, who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good or evil. Right? Apathetic. They, they, they had turned away from the Lord to the point where they thought God would do nothing. God would do not good nor evil. And then in verse 14, uh, Zephaniah announces again, Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. And then verse 17, I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. And so Zephaniah has been very clearly announcing what's coming and announcing what's coming because of the sins of the people of Judah. Now, in the rest of chapter 2, starting at verse 4 that we didn't read, we stopped just before that, he turns to rebuking all the nations around Judah as well. It's often what the prophets do. They rebuke the people of God, and then they rebuke the, those that are raised up by God to rebuke Judah. He rebukes those nations for their pride. And so that will happen here as well. But before he turns to rebuke the nation surrounding Judah, we have one final warning to Judah herself here at the beginning of chapter 2. So when disaster is coming, 
When disaster is coming and you've been warned about it, what's the appropriate thing to do? What's the appropriate thing to do when disaster is coming, you've been warned? The appropriate thing to do is to spring into action the instant you've been warned, right? To spring into action before that disaster comes to do what is necessary to either stop that disaster from afflicting you or do what is necessary really to prepare for that and mitigate against the worst of it. This is what Zephaniah does in this section. Uh, or what he commands, which culminates in an exhortation for the people to be humble. We'll get there in a moment. First, first they're exhorted to gather together. It says in verse 1, gather yourselves together, yes, gather, O nation, without shame. Why was the nation, why was Judah to gather together? The text doesn't say. It could be for the purpose of repenting together as a unit, coming together in a solemn assembly to humble themselves collectively before the Lord. Or the verb here can mean to stoop. Um, Stoop in such a way as to abase yourself, right? Humble yourselves. Or it it can also mean make yourselves as stubble. So regardless of the specific action they are to take, the thrust of of this gather together or stoop together is that they are to abase themselves. They are to humble themselves before the Lord. They are to properly view themselves as small before Almighty God, right? And not just small as far as power, but small as far as Uh, sinful and unclean before their Father in heaven who is holy, holy, holy. Right. This point is further emphasized when the nation is addressed this way. It's called, O nation without shame. Judah was a nation without shame. We live in a similar nation without shame. There are very few things today, think of it, that everyone would call shameful. There are very few things that we as a nation, as a society, would come together and say, well, we all agree that that's shameful. One thing that until recently retained its shame was pedophilia. But that's no longer the rule. That's no longer the rule. And so we're a nation without shame. It is essential that Christians retain shame as a powerful tool in our witness against sin and for Jesus Christ. We must have and must retain a shame for sin. When a people lacks shame, it means that people no longer believe there is right or wrong. It's just whatever you do next. Right? They are, as Zephaniah said earlier, a people stagnant in spirit. Right now, the evangelical and reformed church is doing all they can to remove shame from the sin in particular of homosexuality. Suddenly, it is cool. Not shameful to be gay. And the more the church adapts that train of thought, the more shame is destroyed. Right? And shame is helpful. Think about the shame that God, through the prophet Zephaniah, is trying to bring about in his people. He's calling them shameless and rubbing their noses in their sin. Right, we, we think perhaps that God's methods are antiquated and harsh and unloving and, and not politically correct. 
And one must not just out and name a man's sin and make him feel shame. That would be to oppress that man. Right? That's what we think. But God sent prophet after prophet to do that thing. To call out the sins of the people. You know, if there was not a coming day of the Lord for all of us, then it would be probably wrong to call out people's sins. It would just be to shame them, and it would have no purpose in leading them to repentance. But because there is a day of the Lord coming, it is good. Shame is a tool God uses to lead us to repentance. The moment we lose our shame for sin is the moment we think God is not to be feared. The moment our shame is gone is the moment that we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, and salvation becomes more about self-actualization and less about rescue from a God who hates sin. Our nation hates shame. This is what the whole transgender movement is about right now, removing the shame of the absurdity of a man living like a woman or a woman like a man. There is a war Through transgenderism, there's a war against a much more important thing, which is shame. It's a war against shame. You are no longer able to shame anybody for their sins, even the strangest of sins. And much will be lost when shame is removed for things that are sinful. Unfortunately, today shame is heaped on many things that are godly. Right? We get shame... We're shamed for godly things, and the godless things are protected from shame. Tim Bailey, in his book, The Grace of Shame, writes, Christians across the ages have trembled at our Lord's warning. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes, so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Because shame is painful, our desire to avoid it keeps us from sin. That's the point. Because shame is painful, it keeps us from sin. God gave us physical pain to protect our bodies and shame to protect our souls. A man incapable of feeling physical pain runs the risk of destroying his own body. In the same way, a shameless man risks destroying his own soul. Revealing the horror of those who have turned away from God and headed for punishment and destruction, Scripture says they dearly love shame and glory in their shame. The prophet Zephaniah declares, the unjust know no shame. It can't be said too often that shame is God's grace. Shame is God's grace. Bailey goes on, he says, yes, there is a false shame, and it can be used as a means of oppression. In Nazi Germany, Jews were forced to wear the yellow star, making them feel shame for not belonging to the Aryan race and subjecting them to public scorn. Thus, Christians must discern the difference between true and false shame. True shame is the result of falling short of the standards set by God's word. Whereas false shame is connected with falling short of some man-made cultural standards which have nothing to do with the standards set in the word of god in christian cultures of former times many of their standards were aligned with god's commands so the shame they attached to sin was a great help to souls in their pursuit of god 
Now, though, Westerners have thrown out God's big laws, replacing them with innumerable petty laws that flow from man's prejudices and cater to his sinful desires. It's no surprise, then, that what people are ashamed for today has changed and continues to change. Take climate change deniers, for instance. Also, cigarette smokers and people who forget to fasten their seatbelts. Also, people who drink soda pop. The poor souls who work with their hands for a living. And women who stay at home to mother their eight or, heaven forbid, nine children. Right? Those are the people who are ashamed today. Right? Things that were not shameful yesterday are terribly shameful today, whereas things that were shameful yesterday are required by law today. Consider sex and exposed flesh, for instance. During the summer of 2016, news sites reported the French were outlawing burkinis. Right? What's a burkini, you ask? That's a good question. A burkini is a bathing robe that covers the arms and legs. An Australian woman invented it as a way for women to enjoy the beach without sacrificing modesty. Okay, Muslim women of France took to wearing them on the beach during the hot summer of 2016, and French officials responded by passing laws against this outbreak of modesty. French legislators banned burkinis, and soon the world was treated to pictures of armed and burly French gendarmerie. That's it. That's a French word. Um, Police officers standing over mothers sunbathing on the beach. They measured the precise amount of flesh exposed by the matrons, and if it wasn't sufficient, the matrons received citations. Our point here is not to bemoan the loss of past cultural standards of decency, tragic though it is. Rather, we are working in this chapter to get Christians to wake up to what is happening around and among us. We must return to the timeless standards of honor and shame our Lord has revealed to us in his word. But this is easier said than done. Even earnest Christians fall to the temptation of sitting in judgment on the Bible and God's words because of their desire to fit in with the cultural standards of our own time, right? We get, we start feeling weird about what scripture says rather than, uh, so, so that we can fit, so that we can fit within a nation that is throwing off God's standards. So Judah was a nation without shame. The United States is a nation without shame. We will find it harder and harder, as did Judah, to prepare to face the coming judgment. A a shameless people cares not one whit for their souls. Right? Shamelessness leads to carelessness and stagnancy of spirit. Verse 2, Zephaniah reiterates that Judah must humble themselves before a certain point that is inexorably coming. The time is urgent. Before the decree of God's judgment takes effect, the day passes like chaff. Before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, the shameless say, though, oh, well, you know, the Lord's not going to do good or evil. The shameless do not prepare themselves for judgments because they've already proclaimed themselves righteous, right? But unfortunately for them, the standard they've judged themselves by is not the standard by which the final judge will make his judgments. And how shameful. I mean, how shameful. Hopefully all of you have felt shame when you read God's word. If you haven't felt shame 
when you read God's word, then you have no sense of your sinfulness. You have no sense of God's holiness. You have no sense of, of reality. You're, you're self-deluded. If you can read God's standard and think, doing pretty well. How shameful I've felt when I've contemplated the sins of my youth. How shameful I've felt when, when God's word comes crashing down on my filthy thoughts and my reckless actions. Right? How terrible it has been when I have, when I have not felt any shame. Though my sins are obvious. Right? Undoubtedly, those times when I removed myself from God's means of bringing about that shame, we're not good. we, We remove ourselves from those things that would bring us shame, even... Even those things that God calls us to, accountability from brothers, church, word, worship, all these these standard things that God calls us to. And yet, and yet, how wonderful that in Jesus Christ, I can make the same proclamation of the Apostle Paul who was ashamed of his sin. Right? I find then that the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am. So here he is feeling all of his shame for his sin, right? Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? And then he he proclaims the one place where we can be freed from that shame of sin. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. And then that spills right into chapter 8 where he says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So without shame for sin, there will be no need for the removal of shame by Jesus Christ. Right? Paul in that chapter is grieving his his indwelling sin. And it makes him cry out to Jesus for that forgiveness of sin that's only found in him. Sense is, I mean, shame is our sense of falling short of the glory of God. And in Christ, we have confidence along with the Apostle John that our standing with God has changed because of God's work and that we will stand in the judgment, not shrinking in shame from him. This little verse, this single verse in 1 John chapter 2. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Judah, Judah will shrink back in shame, right? Somebody who does not have the righteousness of Christ clothing him will shrink back in his shame, perhaps feeling that shame for the first time. Feel your shame now and find covering for it in Jesus Christ, right? Verse 3 then, then directs the people of Judah to seek the Lord. Zephaniah says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. 
The humble of the earth are described as those who have carried out his ordinances, those who have kept his commands. Um, It is those who are exhorted here to seek the Lord. Calvin, in his commentary on this chapter, makes sure we know that God's chastisements and threatenings are to bring us to repentance. He says, God now exhorts the Jews to repentance and thus mitigates the severity of his former doctrine, provided their minds were teachable. We hence learn that God fulminates. Fulminates means to express uh, intense protest against. Um, So we now, we hence learn that God fulminates in his word against men that he may withhold his hand from them. Right? He screams at us. He pounds us. He fulminates at us by his word so that he can remove his hand from us when he sees us repent. Right? The more severe then God is when he chastises us and makes known our sins and sets before us his wrath, the more clearly he testifies how precious and dear to him is our salvation. For when he sees us rushing headlong, as it were, into ruin, He calls us back by threatenings and chastisements. Whenever then God condemns us by his word, let us know that he will be propitious to us. If touched with true repentance, we flee to his mercy. For to effect this is the design of all threatenings. That's the design of all threatenings. That's the design of all the threatenings of Scripture is to lead us to repentance so that God might show how great His salvation is to us. And yet we all object as soft modern Americans to any sort of threatenings. We reject the threatenings of God's Word even, let alone an elder or a pastor who has authority over you. God threatens and it leads to repentance. That concept is completely lost on the church today. We have thin skin when it comes to any sort of rebuke. And even when it is the word of God that rebukes us, we turn around and judge God for his standard of righteousness or for his harshness or his lack of regard, his insensitivity. Um, Who are you, though, O man, to talk back to God? God, though, scourges every son that he loves. He disciplines for the purpose of growth and good and sanctification. So so he did with the prophet after prophet to his church in the Old Testament. He sent prophet after prophet announcing his coming wrath. And the entire point was repent before it's too late. Have a proper sense of yourself. Right? Stop being arrogant. And and trusting in your heritage or your idols or your view of God's laziness or his, his distance. Stop indulging your flesh. Instead, Zephaniah exhorts the people, seek righteousness, seek humility. Unrighteousness and arrogance God had had enough of. How could the creature throw off the creator without these two things, unrighteousness and arrogance? Instead, We must, if we know the living God, pursue righteousness, and that just means to pursue right living, to pursue holiness and humility. I would say humility is holiness and attitude. It's proper perspective of self, right? Humility is very, very hard to find among people. 
Show me one humble man, and I'll show you a thousand arrogant men, right? Um, But we often get confused about what humility is today. The humble man is supposed to be the man, right? Today, the humble man is supposed to be the man who doubts himself, who doesn't hold any convictions too firmly, right? Just a sort of a, the humble man is a pushover. He's supposed to be the man who is willing to be trampled. The humble man is supposed to be shy and retiring. But these things have nothing to do with humility, right? Moses is described in Scripture as the most humble man who ever lived. Um, I think, too, that Abraham was humble, and Samuel was humble, and David was humble. Rather than thinking of humility as being a man who lacks convictions, we ought to think of the humble man as the man who lacks convictions not based upon the word of God. The humble man is the man who takes God at his word and lives accordingly. That's the humble man. Takes God at his word, lives it out. The humble man leaves Ur of the Chaldees when God tells him to and does not throw up objections. He just goes. Right, The humble man hacks Agag into pieces, not because he delights in bloodshed, but because God told him to. Right, The humble man dances before the ark of God, not because he wishes to make some spectacle or some show of himself, but because God demands that he be worshipped, and, and David said that he did it before God. That's the humble man. The humble man knows what God requires and does it. Right? The humble man thinks little of himself and much of God, and so his bread is to do the will of his Father in heaven. Jesus Christ is the very paradigm of humility. He did not regard even equality with God, a thing to be held onto, a thing to be argued, right? but emptied himself and died, all because his Father told him to do that. Right? That is humility. The arrogant man reads God's directions about the household, that the man is, the, for example, that the man is the head of the wife and the wife is to submit to the husband. And he, he determines that Dr. Phil really, really has a better take on these things than God Almighty. That's the arrogant man, right? Choosing Dr. Phil over the commands of Almighty God, Right? The arrogant man reads God's directions about sexuality, that there is male and that there is female and there is nothing else. And then he determines that what matters more than what God has said is what he feels. And he will determine his reality by his feelings rather than what God says in his word. That's the arrogant man. Right? The arrogant woman reads God's directions about modesty and a quiet and gentle heart and determines that that bumper sticker that says well-behaved women rarely make history, is the truth. Right? God, God doesn't want us quiet. He wants us to misbehave so we can make history. The humble man obeys God, though the whole world denounces his actions. The humble man knows that he is created by God and therefore is not God and therefore must follow God no matter what. Isn't this the first thing God awakens us to when we are converted by the Holy Spirit? Has God awakened you to this? That we have been arrogant, that before we were converted, we lived an arrogant life. 
right? We lived as we desired, disregarding the God of heaven. Our conversion is the only hope for any real, true humility. But humility is intensely confrontational. Your humility will rebuke everybody around you that's arrogant. You will just go through constant conflict if you're humble. You will. Because you'll just be obeying God and people will despise you for it. Right? The humble man spreads conviction everywhere he goes because he thinks little of himself and much of God. The arrogant thinks much of himself and little of God. And how do you distinguish them? The proof is in their obedience or lack of obedience. Zephaniah then ends this section with this provocative statement. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Perhaps. God, though angry, remember, is slow to anger and is abounding in loving kindness. Those who seek him will not be cast out. Submit yourself to him and learn what it means to be humble. Learn what it means to be righteous. Believe in his son, Jesus Christ, and you will be hidden. Right? You will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. You will be hidden in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hidden in Christ. And so you must, in order to avoid the anger of God, you must take refuge in God himself. You must draw near to him who is angry against sin in order to be saved from that anger. And the only way to approach a holy God is through the holiness of his son, Jesus Christ. The sacrifice for our sins, the one who propitiated an angry God. And so if you have not taken refuge in Jesus Christ, take refuge in him today. Because the day of the Lord is near. It's near. It's always near. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would forgive our arrogant hearts. Forgive the arrogance that thinks that we know how to determine the course of our lives. That we know how we will be saved. That we know how we will live after death. And it's all outside of what you've said in your word and what you've said through your son. So humble us, Father, by the working of your spirit in us. I pray that we would, we would truly be humble, that we would walk in a humble way. That we would always be willing to obey what you have said, come what may. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the covering the clothing that he has given to us, those robes of righteousness. We have sought you, and Father, we need your righteousness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.